You are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2022 Michigan Conference Camp Meeting held at Cedar Lake, Michigan. We pray that the Lord will bless you as you listen. Father, we thank you for the blessing of being able, Lord, to just learn more about you, about your love, about your grace, about your mercy towards us, Lord. And as we learn how to reach out to our brothers and sisters, um, Across the aisle, Lord, I pray that you may be able to help us to have the wisdom and the tact and the love to learn how to reach out in a way that may honor them and may help them to also come to love you as our Lord and Savior. Uh, thank you for being with us throughout the last few days. Allow your Holy Spirit to also be with us today. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I do every day, I want to start off with a scripture. If you can accompany me to the book of Luke, chapter, chapter 10, I'm going to be reading a little bit of the ministry of Jesus in the book of Luke, chapter 10. Actually, that's Luke, chapter 7. Chapter 10 is for tomorrow. <laughs> Luke, chapter 7. And... I will read from verse 28 and then verse 31 and onwards. Luke chapter 7, verse 28, and then 31 and onwards. The Bible says, I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. I'll jump to 31. To what then can I compare the people of this generation? What are they like? They are like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to each other. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not cry. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by all her children." It's interesting here that when we look at the scripture, Jesus uses a type of parable that was very known at that time. And he uses it here in a specific manner to show that his ministry and John the Baptist's ministry was different. It's interesting because John the Baptist, Jesus mentioned just in verse 28, as we read, that he was considered maybe the greatest prophet that ever lived, at least in Jesus' eyes. And this is, some, is something great for Jesus himself to say that he's the greatest prophet. And my question is then, why didn't Jesus follow John's method? <laughs> if John was the, the greatest prophet, why didn't he come and fulfill a similar type of, of ministry? If you look at John's ministry, what type of ministry did John perform? Uh, if you notice, John was an ascetic. He will be considered a person that did not really go out to parties as much spent a lot of time in the desert. He ate certain types of food, was very restrictive in his diet. Even his clothing, it is said, was a, a very, uh, not very extravagant type of, of clothing. And yet, Jesus, although he honored John in his ministry, doesn't follow John's example, but rather comes, the Bible says, eating and drinking. Uh, matter of fact, in the book of Luke, which is one of my favorite gospels, it says that Jesus is either eating with somebody, coming out of a meal, 
or speaking to his disciples how to have a, a good meal. So he's always talking about meals within the Gospel of Luke. And so the question again is, why didn't Jesus follow the example of John? Well, the Bible is teaching us a particular principle that everybody has a particular type of ministry that is going to benefit in particular areas where they are, and they need to adjust their ministries based on the context where they're working. Matter of fact, Jesus didn't start his ministry until he was about 30, right? He spent about 30 years here on earth trying to understand the culture that he was in before he moved forward, before he even acted upon reaching out to individuals officially, he had to understand the culture that he was working in in order to then contextually minister to them. And so it's incredible, Ellen White actually wrote a letter one time to a person that was working in Southern Africa. And she gave this person, this minister, this counsel. She was looking at Paul's ministry as well, and she says, this is the wisdom that Paul exercised he varied his manner of labor, always shaping his message to the circumstances under which he was placed. She even says, some there are who will not be convinced by any method of presenting truth, and, and they may not be pursued, but the laborer for God is to study carefully the best method that he may not raise prejudice nor stir up combativeness. So she's saying you have to learn how to study the culture, the circumstance that you're in, in order to vary your method. And later on, she also says again, God's workmen must be many-sided men, and I will add women as well. That is, they must have a breadth of character, not be one-idea men or women, stereotyped in one manner of working, getting into a groove, and being unable to see and sense that their words and their advocacy of truth must vary with the class of people they are among and the circumstances they have to meet. And so she's placing a great emphasis on the fact that we need to study the culture that we're in in order to be able to minister in a way that the people that we're reaching out may understand us, may understand uh, the type of messages that we're trying to bring forth. Now, in the Islamic context, one of the main things that is very, very important to work with those of the Muslim faith is this idea of shame and honor. I don't know if anyone has heard about this idea before. Some of you have heard about this. Shame and honor is, is very important in the, the context of Islam. If I can explain it in a very easy way, uh, missiologists who have studied the scriptures have noted that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they fell into sin, they had three different reactions. Uh, one was uh, a feeling of guilt. Uh, the other one was a feeling of fear and also the feeling of, of shame. They suffered these three feelings. And missiologists have noticed that across the world, different cultures also tend to show this um, in, in different cultures, but one of these feelings dominates the other two. And so you will have in different cultures around the world uh, one culture will show more dominance the feeling of guilt versus innocence, while other cultures may show a feeling of shame versus honor, and then other cultures may, may show more of a feeling of fear versus power. And as I mentioned, all societies display all of these elements, but there's one that's more dominant in a particular culture. 
In the Western world, we tend to work more with something called the guilt and innocence type of paradigm. Whereas in the majority cultures from which our friends, Muslim friends come from, most of them may be coming from a shame and honor culture. I use the word maybe because obviously you have Muslims that grow up in the US and they may see the world differently from their parents that come from, from overseas. So you have these differences that actually create a lot of strife within the families because they're coming from these different worldviews. In the guilt and innocence culture, uh, these cultures look at behavior through the lens of right and wrong. And so they look at things in a very black and white way. Uh, my behavior has to be evaluated by the law. If there's a law of the land, I look at the law and if I perform the right behavior, then I am innocent. If I do the wrong behavior, then I am guilty. And the main question that, that motivates my behavior is, is my behavior fair or unfair? That's all I'm thinking about. Am I working according to the law? And that's the only thing I, I worry about. In the shame and honor culture, they don't really care about laws as much. What they care about is if my action is gonna bring me shame or honor. And this action is determined by the way that my society looks at me. And so, exactly, so for example, I, I remember uh, Pastor, Pastor Bob yesterday was mentioning the story of Nabil Quraysh, you know, the, the guy that converted. And he has a very interesting example in his book. He uses the example of a person that goes to buy a, a, a drink at, let's say, Subway, and they buy a cup of water but when they go to the stand to get their drink, they pour in juice, right? And we know that in our culture that is seen as something, <laughs> something wrong. He says that in a guilt and innocence culture, I will be thinking about, you know, I will feel some internal guilt in doing this and saying, man, I, I'm breaking the law. And if somebody finds out, then my, my behavior is incorrect, right? But you feel some internal guilt. He says for a shame and honor culture, they don't feel any guilt by doing that action as long as no one catches them. Because what brings shame to them is not them breaking the law. What brings shame to them is somebody finding out <laughs> that I did something wrong, right? But if I do it, it doesn't matter, right? I'm not breaking any laws. I'm not bringing any shame upon myself. That's a right culture for secret suit. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly, that's, that's very much true. And so just to finalize this here, because I don't want to go into much detail into this, but again, the guilt and innocence culture is an individualistic culture. And so again, my guilt is incurred by breaking the law and I experience my guilt privately. Whereas the shame and honor culture is a communal culture and I have to live up to the expectations of my community. And when I live up to the expectations of my community, I bring honor upon myself. When I don't live up to the expectations of my community, that is when I am shamed, but publicly. My community will shame me publicly. And what does that look like? Well, people talking bad about you, you know, people even distancing themselves from you. And that is how you experience shame uh, within these particular cultures. They're ripe for an entire shift such as the mark of the beast. It may not be right, but in a communal culture, it's like a wave. Mm -hmm. Because yeah. you don't want to stand against your culture, receive dishonor. So whether it's right or wrong, you're pressed 
by this great force that you've grown up thinking is the norm. And I will talk a little bit about this later on, how our cultures affect the way that we can accept or not, you know, the gospel. So honor for, let me uh, put the definition first. Honor is the word or value of persons both in their eyes and in the eyes of their village, neighborhood, or society. Uh, the critical item is the public nature of respect and reputation. By the way, I'll send you the, I can send you the PowerPoints. So I already have the emails of, of the others that are here, so I'll send it later on. Muslims, by the way, live and die for honor. <laughs> this is what motivates most of their interactions and behavior. It is even more important than logic, truth, or even their own life, right? They might even kill themselves <laughs> in order to be honored by their, by their societies. That's why you hear about these, these bombings happening all the time. It's for them to bring honor to themselves and to their families, even if it means they have to remove their own lives, right? It is a social capital. You can gain honor, you can lose honor, you can buy honor by acquiring more things to give you more prestige within your society, and, and uh, you can sell as well. But at the center of the community is the family or the clan. People tend to defend their family names, you know, very much. If you say anything against my family, that's it. <laughs> that's when you really are going to get in trouble with me. And you have to defend the family name at all costs. So anything that adds family honor is valuable, and anything that adds shame should be avoided. Now, let me go back here. I want to kind of share with you, maybe in a more practical way, what that looks like in the day-to-day -day for uh, a a, a Muslim, right, or a Muslim family. So we've been recently visiting the Afghan community, and they tend to show this a little bit more than other cultures here in the U.S. as they've recently come. But let's say I, as a man, I go to visit uh, a Afghan family. I'm coming as a male, single, right, going to visit a family. What happens when I'm approaching that particular family? I will text them from beforehand <laughs> and tell them that I'm coming. Why? Because they have to prepare, um, if I'm visiting them at a hotel, to move their women outside of the room where they are and place them in a different room. Now, as a person from the Western world, I might see this and say, wow, look at how they're, they're um, oppressing their women, <laughs> right? They're not allowing their women to interact with men. But in the honor and shame culture, what are they doing? The men are protecting the women from another man that might have bad intentions, right? To do something negative against them. And so also if you find a different culture where the women are allowed to stay around you, of course they will cover themselves, but they might not extend their hand when you come and say hi to them. Again, why? Because they are honoring themselves, but also you, right? In order not to allow you to fall into sin, right? So that's the way that they're thinking about it. Now, when I go to the home uh, or the, the hotel room of the Afghans, and I get there, I, I say hello, I put my hand on my heart, <laughs> you know, I say salam, uh, a shortening of salam alaikum, as we say it in, in the Muslim world. As I enter into the room, I don't know if any of you have visited before, I think my sister has maybe visited, the room is organized in a certain way, right? you have a, a very big chair that is placed farthest away from the door, and that chair is the chair of honor, 
okay? And the closer you are to the, to the door, the less honor you have. So usually in their rooms, the children are the ones that sit closer to the door, and the older person in the room is the one that receives that seat of honor. Matter of fact, when I come in as a guest, they will try to force me to go to the seat of honor. And oftentimes in the culture, you have to try to reject the request a few times just to show that you're being humble, right? That you, you, you understand that they're trying to honor you, but you also understand that that chair is a chair of respect. Jesus spoke about this. You guys remember in scripture, he says, when you get into a room or a party, don't go to the seat of honor, <laughs> right? Make sure that you're, you're showing your humbleness so that if you are called to go sit in the seat, that gives you honor. If you go and sit there <laughs> and somebody else comes, you know, you're being dishonored in front of a whole group of people. And for the shame and honor community, that's the most disgraceful thing that you can go through. So when I'm in the room, uh, obviously in, in the shame and honor cultures, they will serve you something to drink. Uh, and this is very important because sharing a meal is a way of giving honor to a person. Matter of fact, for refugees, this is actually one of the most, what word would I use? One of, one of the most uh, joyful things that they want to do for you because they feel so restricted by being in a, diff in a different country now that they don't have the ability to show hospitality as they used to do back in their hometown. And so for them, you coming and being their guest is allowing them to feel empowered now <laughs> to be able to serve you and to give them dignity and worth again. Um, being in that in, in that space. Yeah, yeah it just made me think it's the most significant thing they can do here. So they want to serve you <laughs> because that brings them honor, right? Being able to serve somebody else lifts you as a person up. And so it, it's a very beautiful thing that when you go into that room, not to reject their food, <laughs> okay? Prepare to be fed. Prepare to be fed. Now, there's certain people that have health restrictions. Uh, don't drink maybe the teas that they serve, or maybe they might serve some meat sometimes when, when you're there. So what do you do in, in that situation? Well, my counsel is to take at least the, the cup of tea and just sip it, <laughs> and then just put it back down, so that they can at least see that you're recognizing that, that um, they're being hospitable, and you can honor them uh, in that way. Now, tomorrow I will talk about how to have more spiritual conversations with them, Today, I'm just talking about the cultural aspect here. But I do want to mention, as I mentioned yesterday, we, we saw how we can pray with Muslims. And I want to show for those who weren't there yesterday, now Muslims often pray with their hands extended, right, like this. They will not close their eyes when, when they are praying. But as you pray with them, at the end of the prayer, they will receive the blessing by wiping their face like this. Right? And this is how they show that they've received your prayer. But there's a reason why I tend to do this type of prayer and not the normal prayer that we do as, as Christians. Why? Let me tell you one, one experience that I had. I remember uh, a family that invited us to go over to meet them. And as we were getting to the end of the visit, I asked them, do you have any prayer requests? And of course, they shared it with me. And then I went like this. <laughs> And the father in the house, he looked at me and he smiled. <laughs> and they all, you know, placed their hands. I prayed. And when I finished, he looked at me and said, where did you learn to pray like that? <laughs> That's what he said. I said, well, I have some, some Muslim friends. They've taught me how to pray. 
And then he said, man, it's an honor to know that somebody that is a Christian sees me as a brother. <laughs> right? So I showed honor by respecting their religion. Right? I don't agree with everything in Islam. But I was showing honor by at least allowing them to see that I respect them as spiritual people. You know? So this was a very beautiful moment in knowing just a little bit of the culture, I could show them respect by being able to, to interact with them. Um, I guess maybe it's just maybe it's just different practices. Is it the dominant way to pray like this? Because I know that there was at least among some of my Muslim friends, there was some debate because some of them would pray like this as opposed to this. So is it is that just the dominant way to pray? Is like this, or do some? Because anyways, there was at least at that time there was a lot of controversy on. Yeah, you know. on forms yeah because you have people together from many different countries different clans different so yeah this is the dominant way but you can ask the person how how do they pray because they're also coming from different they can come from different strands like shias and sunnis right. tend to pray differently also if when they're preparing themselves to go to the ritual prayer the shias wash themselves in a different way than the sunnis and so you have that as well, and also the culture, as you were mentioning, might determine some of those forms. And so, yes, it's always good to ask. And asking as well is a way of showing honor. If you say, hey, I don't know much about your culture, I don't know how you guys pray. <laughs> Can you teach me how to pray? Your way of praying. How, how is your, <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. You've mentioned that there's two types of prayer. I, I actually forget the name. The du'a du du and yeah, the salat. The asking of mm -hmm. your own personal requests. Um, but I think the more common prayers are just recitations of the mm -hmm. Quran. That's mm -hmm. it. It's, it's very repetitious. Yeah, yeah. And has it's it's very ritualistic. The ones I've been to were they weren't ritualistic, but I guess it just depends on where you're. At. Yeah, the setting. Um, I can share an experience. We talked about this yesterday, but the Quran is not seen in the same way as the Bible in the sense that uh, the Muslims don't use the Quran particularly to study, <laughs> right? They, they might know some verses here or there. I'm talking about the regular everyday Muslim, not the intellectual or the person that studies. So they, might, they use it more for recitations, as, as you're mentioning. And even in cultures where they don't know the language, Right? They might still have to learn Arabic in order to be able to recite because the Arabic in the Quran is the word of God. Right? It's God speaks in Arabic. <laughs> right? It's a superior language to all the other languages of the world. And so here's an example. I had this experience where when I just started to um, study Arabic, I met a, a young woman online from, from Jordan, and she was helping me to, to practice my words. And this was just at the start. And one day she tells me, she says, hey, by the way, um, in order for you to study better and actually to learn better, I'm going to teach you a recitation. And if you do this every night, God is going to give you the power to learn Arabic in three months. That's what she told me. So I thought she was joking at first, but then she said, no, 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 this is true. If you recite this every night, you're going to learn Arabic very quickly. You know, Allah is going to give you the strength that you will memorize everything and you will learn the language in three months. You know, Arabic, I'm not going to learn Arabic in three months. But this was her understanding. So she sent me the verse, then she recorded it for me. 
and told me, just recite what I'm telling you. You don't have to understand what you're reciting, but this is going to give you the power to be able to do that. So this is one of those many things, right? Uh, I have other friends who have books um, that have different recitations for every moment in life. Okay, you're going to have a long travel. This is what you recite. Uh, you're going to give birth. This is what you recite for protection. You know, uh, every aspect of life has some type of prayer that you that you do. Well, one more thing too mm -hmm. is that one reason I think that the prayers of recitation of the Quran are elevated above the just simply communing with God and asking for your requests is that. Muslims really do, they, they, I think they completely reject the idea that God is relational. He's do. not relational. Mm -hmm. He's there, we're here, we are only here as his slaves to acknowledge and worship him. You do that by reciting the Quran. And he's, I mean, I want to say, I mean, don't think that Muslims don't pray to God about requests, but... But um, he's not a friend to them. He's not a friend. Well, no, no. God is way above us. As you mentioned, the word servant is, is very common for somebody to say, I'm just a servant <laughs> of Allah, you know. No, a slave. Yeah. They, Sorry, slave. slave. Sorry, they, slave, slave of Allah. And that You're right. word is used mm -hmm. in the Bible, but it has a bit of a different meaning. Right, right. Um, right. So, yeah, this is interesting. And of course, the Bible mentions, well, Jesus has words to say about prayers of recitation. Yes, he has many words <laughs> to say about that. But yes, this is one of the ways, going back to what we're talking about, is in the context of shame and honor, if you want to really connect with a Muslim friend, to ask them, as you're saying, how to pray with them, but also using some of their forms in order to connect with them. Now, there are some individuals that might have some issues with, with you maybe reading a text or two from the Quran. Right? This has been a discussion that many missiologists have. Like, can I use the actual book that they use in order to teach them something about God? You know? And you know, I'm not going to give you the answer today for that, obviously, because this has been discussed for a while. But some people are of the opinion that this also shows some type of respect for them, even though you, you allow them to know that I don't necessarily agree with what your book is saying, but I can find some gems of truth that are, that are there that connect to scripture. And so sometimes you have to find certain ways to be able to see if there's some truth there and connect it to a biblical principle. And that can be a way of helping them not only to develop a better understanding of your faith, but come to trust the actual thing that they think is corrupt, which is the Bible, right? And helping them to know that the Bible can be respected because it has certain things that are relational or, sorry, that are similar to their scripture. And so let's, uh, let's talk about how shame and honor can affect somebody's entrance into the faith, meaning if they want to accept to become a, a Christian or not. So usually in the shame and honor culture, as you were mentioning before, one of the main ways of you dishonoring your family is actually by abandoning the faith. Because in the shame and honor culture, your faith is part of your identity. 
It's part of your culture. It's not something separate um, from, from your identity. Obviously, we've heard the stories before that when a person that is from a Muslim background decides to become a Christian, oftentimes the family will reject them and even torture them because they have to publicly show, right, retaliate publicly because they've been dishonored publicly. So they have to retaliate publicly as well to show individuals that they do not agree with the action of, of their children and then to publicly shame them and, and disconnect themselves from the disgrace of the family. But here's another concept that actually I learned from a friend of mine who worked in a shame and honor culture. I'm not gonna mention where he worked, but this was an interesting story that, that really got me to think a little bit deeper about how, how deep the shame and honor uh, culture is. So my colleague was working with a young man and they studied the scriptures together and finally, the young man decided that he wanted to become a follower of Jesus. And so they arranged a date of baptism. And a few days before the baptism happens, this young man comes to my colleague and says, hey, I really want to get baptized, but there's an issue. Uh, I know my family is going to be dishonored by this act that I'm going to do. And my colleague inter interacts with him there and says, I understand, yes, your family might come after you and they might even try to kill you. We have instituted certain measures in order to protect you. He says, no, this is not what I'm scared about. He says, because my family is gonna be dishonored within my community, my sisters are not gonna be able to get married <laughs> because no man will want to connect with a dishonored family anymore. And so I'm not scared for my life. I'm scared that my actions are going to affect my sisters, you see? And so this is what, what happens in the shame and honor culture. It's not individualistic anymore. Every action that I make not, not only affects me, it affects everybody in my family, in my community, even it affects my religion. I bring dishonor to God, right? So we have to think about that shame and honor aspect in a very deep way, it's intertwined in the cultures that our Muslim friends are, are coming from. Now, another thing that I want to put forward is that oftentimes Muslims do not reject also the gospel because of theological reasons per se, but rather they reject it because of shame and honor reasons. Let me give you an example. I was, I was working with a, a, a young man uh, online. We were doing Bible studies online. And one day he came to me and said, Daniel, uh, I've heard that you Christians actually worship three gods, right? So I said, okay, um, that's, that's very interesting. Tell me more. <laughs> Tell me more about that. He said, well, I've heard that you guys believe that God had intercourse with Mary. <laughs> and through that intercourse, Jesus was born, and he became the, the son of God. And I said, wow, that's, <laughs> that's very interesting. He says, yes, and you guys call that the Trinity. I said, okay. And so I said, why, why is it so offensive to you? Remember, I'm just asking questions, <laughs> right? I'm not trying to defend myself. I'm trying to understand where he's coming from and why he thinks this is something wrong. So I tell him, why do you think this is, this is wrong? <laughs> and he says, well, because no God that is the, the creator of the universe 
will try to bring forth a son by having an intercourse with a human being. That means he needs help. He needs the help of humans in order to create something. And that was his issue, right? That God has shamed himself because he's using a human being in order to create something. And so that to him was very disgraceful. It wasn't the intercourse, right? It wasn't the necessarily the sonship, even though that, of course, is an issue, even for myself as a Christian. But for him, God is showing himself as weak because he's using a human being in order to bring something forward. And so again, the, the shame and honor aspect is, is very important. We know that Muslims reject the sacrifice of Jesus for that very same reason as well, and also the incarnation for that same very reason as well. They reject the incarnation of God because they said, what type of God will become a weak human being <laughs> in order to come to this earth? He is dishonoring himself in order to come here. Or what type of God would allow himself to be killed on a cross? He's dishonoring himself by allowing that to happen. Go ahead. <laughs> I think you touched on something that's also um, critical, that Muslims view God in a way that he does not need us. Mm -hmm. He didn't create us because he needed us. He created us for us to give him worship and honor. And it's, it's important to understand that. And I think it differs from, you know, th these are all such subtle subtle mm -hmm. line border lines between Christian and, and Christianity and Islam but we just had a I, 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 I maybe it was Bradshaw maybe Dr. Bradshaw Pastor Bradshaw said this where the statue of the feet of the hands were were detached and and then the pastor put a saying I need your hands mm. to finish my work right. I only have your hands mm -hmm. So in Christianity, there is, there, there is an interdependence and, mm -hmm. and, and a relationship there, right. whereas that is not in Islam at all. Right, right, right. And you can notice this not just in terms of the theological matters, but for the men in, in the families, when you're visiting the men here, the refugees, they oftentimes would not express that they need stuff, <laughs> you know, because it's, it's too offensive for them to show weakness. And so oftentimes we get to know about the family's needs by the connections with the women. <laughs> you know, when you go and connect with the women, the women say, hey, we have a few women here that are pregnant. <laughs> they need this, they need that. But the men, they will <laughs> not share anything at all. You know, unless you really get into a real friendship with them to the point where they can be vulnerable and know that you will not dishonor them by sharing that with other people, right? And so that is something that plays a, a, a big role in our ways of communicating with our, our Muslim friends. So I wanted to mention again, the top things that bring shame to a family are sexual impurity and converting to Islam, as we have already talked about. The women in shame and honor communities are the bearers of honor, right? If you touch a woman, you touch the whole family, right? And that's why they are protected in that way. The men are the protectors of the honor. And so you will notice something that when young children are growing up, and I will show you a, a particular resource that you can use later on to get this information. But when young children are growing, it is the responsibility of the mother to teach them 
what shame and honor is. And so they will be the ones to really help them to understand this. But as they are growing up, when they reach the ages of 13, 14, the father then becomes the person that starts to really, you know, help them to maintain that honor. But you will notice in, in Muslim families especially, that young boys at the age of 13 and 14 will start emulating their fathers by sometimes chastising their sisters <laughs> if the sisters are being dishonorable, right? Because they have to start showing that they're becoming men, they understand this concept, and so they have to protect um, their sisters. I, I have a friend, a, a, a young woman, she's maybe 26, 27, and she gets corrected by her nine-year-old um, um, brother. <laughs> Right? When she posts some stuff online, the brother writes and tells her, take that down. <laughs> right? And she doesn't view this as anything wrong. She says, wow, he's becoming a strong man. Right? He, he's becoming a man in his society because he's trying to protect my honor. Okay? What would that look like in the Western context? The girl would say, man, you're, you're a child. What do you have to tell me to, to do? Right? But in their context, he's a strong man. He's protecting the honor of, of the family. Yes. So that brings up a question then, typically or generally speaking, do most of the women in Islam uh, accept that kind of uh, behavior as normal and is okay? Because from a Western point of view, there's a, there's a tendency to think, you know, they're being oppressed and they're being treated well, as slaves. It's because we don't, we don't have this idea of honor. We don't, we have no, con we do not understand the importance of honor. I think that was, a, at least for me, when I would, when I had a conversation with my Muslim friends that, you know, wore the, the hijab or... Can you speak up, please? Oh, sorry. When I spoke with my friends that were Muslim, they wore the hijab, and we were sitting in the room. It was just me, so they weren't wearing it. And and that's when they explained. It's like, you know, it's it was such a privilege to them. It For them, it's a privilege. Because it's like, you women dress up for all the men out there. He's like, we dress up for our man when mm. he comes home. He, he gets to see it. Nobody else gets to see that. And I was like, wow, I never thought of it that way. Because they understand this principle of honor. We don't have that concept in our, in our culture. Yeah, and it seems to be, obviously, I, I wouldn't say for every woman in the world, but it seems to be that they do accept um, that protection from, from their family because they're seen as valuable, right? We're giving them value by, by protecting them. Now, I mentioned at the start, that that concept tends to change with generations. So for example, here we have that issue, that you have a younger generation that's growing up in the Western world, Muslim younger generation, and these women are saying, we don't want men to tell us what to do, <laughs> right? We're dressing and putting on the hijab for ourselves and for God, right? We make this decision on our own. We don't need the men to tell us what to do or they, already we've seen even in, in some countries overseas where they're fighting already for, you know, to, to have um, the ability to drive or the ability to have their own businesses or things like that, you know, because they're trying to move away from this type of, at least what they feel to be oppression. So that's what I'm saying, I cannot generalize. <laughs> I think there's some change that is happening um, but I do think that those who understand the shame and honor concept will accept that to some degree and say, I feel valued when my family is protecting me. Yeah. So I, I think it depends. I mean, there, there is your mainstream Muslims, and then your, there's your more fundamental um, Muslims. 
your mainstream Muslims are going to, like he said, this is our culture, this is, this is just normal for us. But the more fundamental they become, the more oppressive it becomes for women, is my opinion. Now with the covering in the hijab, um, I, I can understand that because, um, you know, they have worn that their whole life. Now, if they are to go to another country and take it off, that is like, you know, my sister-in-law said, it's like I'm naked. Mm. And so, yeah, there's no way they would take it off yeah. just because that's part of them. Right, right. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. Now, I want to start ending here because we don't have much time. But I do want to talk about how shame and honor will then affect the way that we present the gospel uh, to our Muslim friends. How will we package it in a way that they will understand this idea of shame and honor? Well, the Bible is an honor-shame book, <laughs> right? The Bible itself has already that culture embedded in it. Matter of fact, when our friends from uh, shame and honor cultures read the Bible, they understand it a little better <laughs> than us from uh, the Western world. There's about 150 verses, as you see, dealing with guilt, but about 350 verses that deal with shame within Scripture. And the Bible speaks of sin in terms of shame and honor. Can somebody read this verse for me, Romans 2, 23 and 24? What does that verse say? Romans 2, 23 and 24. I want you to notice who is being shamed in that verse when you read it. Thou that makest thy boast of the law through breaking the law, dishonoreth thou God? For the name of God, for the name of God is blasphemed. I mean, among you, among the Gentiles, through you, as it is written. How do we see the, the shame and honor concept there? Who, who is the one that's causing the shame? The believers. the believers. And how are they causing the shame? Among the Gentiles. Among, and among the Gentiles. <laughs> that's the key there. It's a public disobedience that the Gentiles are looking at them. And because the Gentiles do not look at them well, God is being dishonored. <laughs> You see? So not only them, they represent a, a bigger body, <laughs> right? God himself is being dishonored because of this. Uh, I want to end with, um, I already spoke about this. There's a website from the Zwemer Institute. I can send it to you later on as well. And I like the way that they kind of portray the gospel. If you wanted to to memorize a short way of portraying the gospel to your Muslim friends, I think that steps will help. I kind of adjusted it. I put some of the Bible verses to help out for you to kind of find those concepts there. But this is a way that they present the gospel to, to Muslims. They say, God wants to honor you as his child. He created us with glory and honor to live in his family. And we can find it in, in Genesis there. Our disloyalty disrespects God and brings disgrace. Did we just read that, right? Our disloyalty disrespects God and brings disgrace to him. And we are now spiritual orphans separated from our father. One of the main stories that is used to explain this is the story of the prodigal son. And that also shows the shame and honor dynamics that happen there. So the disgraceful death of Jesus covers our shame in Hebrews 12 too, Because Jesus took on our shame right, and covers us. And the cross restored God's face, which is very important in the shame and honor culture. 
and brings reconciliation. We are adopted as his worthy children with a new inheritance. If you notice here, remember in the shame and honor culture, one way of showing that you, that you want to uh, show disrespect to someone is breaking the relationship with the person. <laughs> and to restore that, that honor again, you restore <laughs> the relationship, right? And so the ministry of reconciliation is really a ministry of restoring honor, <laughs> right? This is what it is. And so in order to have harmony with God, you must give allegiance to Jesus. John 12, 26 says, whenever we give allegiance to Jesus, the Father honors us, right? When we obey Jesus, the Father gives us honor. So receive God's gracious welcome to his family and live under his honorable name. I think as we think more about that, how to teach someone, uh, we can memorize something like this, but obviously, of course, with your conversations, as you share stories, you will learn better how, how to do that. So, yes. Mm -hmm. Have you used the word father to refer to God with them? And yes. No, um, usually this happens after I have a very good relationship with a person um, where I'm sharing of my faith and it doesn't bring much disrespect in that particular relationship. I will talk about this tomorrow. Yeah, but one of the main things, and I'll bring that up since you brought it, is sometimes we cannot talk about doctrines without having a relationship first established with someone. And one of the main ways that we actually break our opportunities to minister is by confronting people without a relationship, <laughs> right? And so we really need to find a space where we can talk to people. Um, and they understand this concept of father. They'll come to understand it in the concept of shame and honor. Yeah. Because it's been my experience, just right off the bat, they're like a father because it's a human, bringing them down to a human level. Yeah, I mean, when you pray, they like you to use the generic form, God. They don't like you to pray in Jesus' name. They don't like you to say our father. He's not our father because mm -hmm. he's way above us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, but they don't have a problem. I found um, that they don't have a problem praying if you use God. Right, which, which I, I practice as well. My friend that I just talked about who had this idea of God having intercourse with Mary, <laughs> having son Jesus, once I explained to her that this wasn't the case, she wasn't worried about the name Father anymore because it didn't have that connotation. <laughs> See, so once I explained that, then she was ready to accept. People on a borderline too, and they are, because of the honor and shame, they do not want to bring dishonor to God, to Allah. Exactly, yeah. Which honestly, <laughs> is, I respect that so much, because as Christians, we, I think sometimes because of grace, mm -hmm. We can be a little more flippant, mm -hmm. not as, I think, diligent in order to bring honor to God's name. We don't think, yeah, we don't think as much as I think we should right. about God's honor. Right, right, right. You know, and, and really, we're not as far from that shame and honor culture as I think we think we are sometimes. Mm -hmm. I mean, for instance, my dad, when I first went, got out of the home and I had my first job, um, and, and then finished the job and left it, he contacted my employer and wanted to find out if I had uh, left a good rep. I mean, so mm. that still is there in our culture. But right. recently, of course, it's been really uh, leveled. I mean, for instance, opening doors for women and trying to you know, do things for them. I right. Mean, you almost get socked in the face if you try to right. do that anymore. Right. There, there is some element today, I think, especially online and social media, 
of shaming someone publicly <laughs> on social media. And this is actually a shame and honor thing, right? We bring up somebody, something that somebody did in the past and we bring it up in social media and that explodes, <laughs> right? Because you're bringing public shame to someone. So some of that is still there in the culture. But as we mentioned, there's always a dominant one, right? That, that tends to, to guide the motives of the behaviors of those in that culture. So I have this PowerPoint in it. I'm gonna send it to you. It gives you actual practical ways of when you're visiting someone what to do, not to shake them with your left hand and things like that. You can find it in this PowerPoint. So I will send that to you. I will not go through that um, today. But as we finish, I do want to say this. The best way to honor a Muslim <laughs> is by eating with them. And I want to challenge you at some point as you leave these trainings to find a friend and just invite them to eat. <laughs> you can honor them by inviting them to your home. Or you can even honor them by allowing them to, to have you as a guest. Right, And so that will be a challenge that I have for you. Jesus did this, as I mentioned, throughout the book of Luke. He's always eating, right? To the point where people got tired of him eating. Uh, and they called him a glutton. But he understood that eating with prostitutes and sinners was a way of elevating their honor. And I believe God, at the end of time as well, is going to do what for us? He's going to have a big banquet <laughs> to honor us, right, as his children. And so... Hopefully, you can start emulating that banquet by doing something here for your Muslim brothers and sisters. Yes, you have a question. So I have, I'm a physical therapist, and I treat patients in their homes. Mm -hmm. And um, I have a Muslim um, client that um, I brought some food to. And I was just wondering, it seemed to be accepted well, but I just was wondering, is that something, if you bring them food, is that something that's, that's a good thing or not really? You know, how is that received by them? That's a good question. <laughs> I don't know if I can answer you because I don't know who that person is, right? People, some people grow up in the West and they might receive that well. But I, I can say this. The amount of food that you give to someone <laughs> can oftentimes show how much honor you have for them or the type of gift that you give them. So they tend to evaluate that if you're coming from a shame and honor culture. Um, that is as much as I can, I can give. But the biggest way of honoring someone is having them at your home. So this is something that I've noticed. Um, my friends will not let me take them out to eat. <laughs> they will rather either have me come to their house or I will have them over at my house. <laughs> That's how it works, you know? So. <laughs> Before you said it, that was what I was gonna say. And you are in, like, when you invite a Muslim into your house and their family, you are in a better position to share our health message. You won't start speaking about it, but they'll start asking you questions. Oh, where's the meat? Oh, what, you know, all of this stuff. And then you can say, well, it opens up a, a, a conversation. That's what our pastor's wife did. Mm. And um, yeah, she, it came with good results. Right, right. Yeah. Thank you, thank you for that. Let us end with a prayer. And I'm very thankful for all, all the interaction. I, I think I've, I've learned a lot as well if I'm listening to you. And hopefully tomorrow we can have a, another blessed class. Before we pray though, again, one, you have written down some names in the first class, 
of individuals that you want to pray for. And I want to mention that again, since some of you are new, please write down some names of either a mosque that is close to you that you want to pray for, or Muslim friends that you have that you want to see them come to Jesus Christ. And let's pray for them, not only this week, <laughs> but throughout uh, the, the rest of the time that we have, praying for opportunities for us to minister to them, right? This will be very important. So let us pray together. Father, I thank you that you have been able to show us, Lord, through your grace and mercy, that you are a God that wants to honor us. Lord, we have oftentimes disgraced you by living in a way that brings disgrace not only to us as individuals, but to your name. And Lord, one of the ways that we have disgraced you is by neglecting our brothers and sisters of the Muslim faith. We have often stereotyped them, spoken badly about them, Lord, and we want to ask forgiveness. We want to ask you, Lord, that you may allow us to have sympathy for them and a heart to be able to show the love of Christ to our brothers that are also seeking to learn, to find, and to understand you better. So help us, Lord, to become uh, your gift to this world in allowing the gospel to be shared through us and allow us, Lord, to be able to have also, Lord, the love to show the love of Jesus to those who need to learn about him too. I thank you for this beautiful class here, for the beautiful families that are represented. Um, honor them, Lord, in a way that they may know that you're also walking with them. It's my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org slash audio 22 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcasts.